2: Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're bringing you an episode from The Vault. This is Ant Wars, Part 2, originally aired June 14th, 2020. Uh, let, Let the Ant Wars continue. Deliver thyself as a roe from the hand of the hunter, and as a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise, which, having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her meat in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your
3: Mind,
2: a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow
0: Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And that was a reading from the King James Translation of the Bible. It's from the book of Proverbs, chapter six. Uh, and I was looking right before we started, I was like, oh, let me check my scholarly uh, Oxford annotated edition of the Bible to see if it's got any insights on how the author of this passage knew that all of the worker ants in the colony were female. And no, it just says this passage appeals to the natural world. (laughs) (laughs) i love that that's a great insight there yeah (laughs) because i had questions about this
1: one i was not familiar with this passage we just kind of were looking for for fun things to read at the at the top of our our second ant war episode and uh, i was like oh i wonder what the what what the old king james version had to say about ants and here we are a verse that At once seems to uh, to get the the gender of uh, the vast majority of an ant colony correct and also uh, doesn't get hung up on the idea of a central ruler. Like in in a couple of ways, this is a
0: very um, accurate reading of ant uh, civilization. You know, I didn't even think about it, but I'm sure that means this is one of those verses that's been employed by Christian apologists to suggest the inerrancy (laughs) of the Bible, right? Because it, but uh, but I gotta say, this verse is is pretty dead on, right? Uh, Yeah, Yeah. there there is no guide, overseer, or ruler. It's just the swarm intelligence that emerges from the ants' evolved instinct, and uh, and it's true. The ants are not lazy. Like I think that's the point of the passage. It's like, look, the ant doesn't wait around, try, you know, wait around to be told what to do. just knows what to do and does it right and uh, of course then there's this bit about uh,
1: the gathering of food and the storing of food which depending on which species you're looking at is also uh, really accurate of course as we continue to look at examples of of ant civilization and ant warfare we're going to get into some examples that uh, that are a bit more
0: barbaric and uh, uh, ravaging I guess Yeah, for a biblical parallels, some of these ant stories are going to be closer to the uh, conquest of Canaan than the the (laughs) wisdom of Proverbs. Uh, But this is funny because it also brings up the idea of, you know, in the last episode we were talking about, obviously, ancient people had been looking at ants and trying to understand their behavior long before there was a unified scientific study, you know, a field known as entomology. And the comparison to military forces and armies has been there since ancient times. But I, I think this is definitely not the only case where people read spiritual significance into ant behavior.
1: No, yeah, I was I was reading about this, and ants have a sacred role in a number of different religions. In some African traditions, they are considered messengers of the gods, and throughout India, you'll find various customs that involve protecting ant lines and ant hills, uh, even uh, uh, leaving out food for the ant hills or um, decorating them in some uh, you know slight fashion, like you know the sprinkling of uh, of uh, you know some sort of colored herb, that sort of thing, and uh, and. Like Likewise, it's considered heinous to disturb an anthill especially. I was reading about all this in uh, a book titled "The Sacred Animals of India" by uh, Nandita Krishna, which is an excellent little book from Penguin Press. You can pick it up like most most places. I think I picked it up at a yoga studio once while I was waiting <laughs> uh, waiting for my wife uh, to get her shoes on, and I'm like, "Oh, what's this? A book about animals?" And I started leaving through it, and it's just animal by animal. Uh, you know, some 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 fascinating uh, facts about how it ties into uh, uh, Hindu traditions, but then also sometimes there's a little science as well. So like there's a bit about the ant and they also touch on some of the, the basic facts about ants and their role in ecology that we've been discussing here uh, but but in this book the author describes a couple of uh, cool details uh, first of all a tale in which in- Indra desires a glorious palace so Vishnu comes to him and points out a line of ants uh, in the dirt and tells him that each and every one of them is an Indra that rose to the highest level of existence and then fell down again via pride. So there's a, you know this recurring idea that, that ants, like all these other animals, are part of the cycle of rebirth. The author also mentions that uh, Valmiki, the author of the Ramayana, emerged from an anthill or a Valmika after 10 years of meditation. So uh, in this case, the, the author um, uh, of the Hindu epic ends up taking on the name of the anthill as part of their new uh, emerged identity.
0: That's interesting and counterintuitive because it imagines the anthill as a place that would be appropriate for meditation, solitude, you know, like quiet contemplation. Whereas <laughs> when I think of an anthill, I would think of the exact opposite, something that is certainly organized from, from the ant's own genetic point of view, but us looking down at it, it's so chaotic and frenzied, it seems like it would be impossible to focus
1: Yeah, but then I guess you could also look at it as a place of just pure order or to to really get into, I guess, some more of a, uh, you know, a a, a topic that's important in Hindu epics, uh, a place of pure duty. Like there's Mm. just there's, uh, you know, absolute duty, uh, you social duty to the the colony. And there's no there's no room for ant despair or uh, ant ambition. You know, you're not going to be pulled in either of those directions. It's just pure, absolute duty. So really, it's it's an ideal place to fall um, if you uh, you know achieve some demigodic state of pride and uh, and then have to uh, you know fall back down to a lower life form and then work your way back up. Ants a good place to start.
0: Yeah, kind of a form of contrapasso, right? Like the idea that uh, the divine punishment or not necessarily punishment either, but the the divine justice somehow fits the uh, fits the original offense that brought it on. Yeah.
1: So, if you're joining us in this episode, you've probably figured out that we're talking about ants. And, uh, and this is indeed the second in our Ant Wars uh, series. So, if you didn't listen to the last episode, uh, we would uh, recommend you go back and give it a listen. We discussed the empire the ants and and very broadly the endless wars that formed the boundaries of their individual kingdoms. I want to go back again to the writings of Mark W. Moffat. Uh, and this is uh, from uh, the that uh, Scientific American article that I I previously uh, uh, mentioned that's also hosted on his website uh, at drbugs.com. dot <laughs> com. He writes. Quote, in Ghana, I witnessed a seething carpet of workers of the army ant species, Doralus nigricans, searching together across an area a hundred feet wide. These African army ants, which in species uh, such as D. nigricans that move in broad swaths are called driver ants, slice the flesh off their enemy or quarry with blade-like jaws and can make short work of victims thousands of times their size. Although vertebrate creatures can usually outrun ants, in gabon i once saw an antelope caught in a snare
0: eaten alive by a colony of driver ants that highlights something that I was planning uh, on talking about in just a little bit when we get to one particular species of army ant that I was finding really fascinating. But, uh, but I guess we can address it now. So, uh, you know, the kingdom of the crystal skull vision, which goes back to <laughs> earlier movies and stuff, where the the army ants essentially are terrestrial movie piranha. You know, mm-hmm. you've got the you've got the Hollywood acid that that strips the human to the bone in in seconds. You've got the Hollywood piranha that stripped the human to the bone in seconds. I don't know if either of those are really very accurately reflective of stuff that happens in the real world, and then the ants are the next thing—the Hollywood army ants that just sterilize your skeleton. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that doesn't seem to be something that happens in reality. Certainly not, I would say, with a with a large animal that can move. A lot of army ants are are going to be absolutely apocalyptic in their implications for smaller animals, for insects, arachnids, centipedes, and even small vertebrates like little frogs and snakes and stuff. But larger animals, they don't actually represent a threat like that. Like you can easily get away from them. The only case I would imagine where army ants might represent a a real threat to larger animals would be if you are totally immobilized. Right. So if you're caught in a snare, buried up to your neck in the sand, that sort of thing. Right. And even then, I don't know if they would necessarily kill you because they're they're looking for their their main prey species, which are going to be all kinds of invertebrates.
1: Yeah, they're probably going after something like termites or other ants, uh, heads sticking out of the ground, not really on the menu, usually.
0: But, uh, but I wouldn't want to try it. I'm not saying it's necessarily safe. <laughs> that could
1: be the next big Hollywood magician act, though, right? David Blaine buries himself oh, right. in the sand. I mean, I'd be
0: surprised if he hasn't done it already. Well, it, no, it's the next big confidence game, you know, so they got the walk across the hot coals oh. thing. <laughs> uh, that's like the confidence building exercise, but but the, the next stage is the bury yourself up to the neck and let the army ants come. Now, uh, well, another
1: a little piece of uh, house cleaning from the last episode I want to throw in here. In the last episode, I briefly mentioned pheromones as being essential to ant communication. And I don't want to gloss over this too much because I imagine many of you have, have seen videos of uh, pheromonal demonstrations. Uh, you know, The, the, the ant overlord E.O. Wilson himself does this at times in which a pheromone is painted like a paintbrush or a Q-tip or something uh, across a surface and then ants follow it. And as informative as one as a demonstration like this can be, don't take it to mean that there is just there's a real blunt simplicity to it. As as Wilson himself stresses, there is a pheromonal language for ants. Uh, any given ant species uses a whole palette of pheromones and chemical signals to communicate.
0: Yeah, it it can be very complex, uh, though there are also very simple ways to see it in action, and like creating the the pheromone trails that are like E.O. Wilson was involved in research that discovered one of the main uh, glands in the ant's gaster that deposits a pheromone that creates the trail leading to food, and generally if you deposit this pheromone, as you will see, you know, humans can extract it and put it in a bottle, like you're saying, do these demonstrations where you just put a line of it down on a table mm-hmm. and suddenly the ants form up and follow the line. Those can be striking direct demonstrations, even though the full web of pheromonal interactions can be much more complex. And you can also is easily do this yourself, even without um, the extraction of that kind of pheromone, simply by if you've ever tried dragging your finger across an ant trail, uh, where like, you know, if you can smudge the, the chemicals away and maybe disrupt it with some of the oils from your own finger suddenly the movement of the ants becomes chaotic gets all confused because the deposition of chemicals that has created this trail has been broken
1: I've been I've been noticing these ant, tra- ant trails a lot more on my walks recently. Uh, my family and I will go out to some various nature walking bike trails in the area that are that are not that populated and some of them have you know slabs of concrete and there'll be these little essentially little trenches that stretch across them where one slab meets the other and in invariably those are the trenches through which the ants move not over the top where they're going to potentially get smashed by a uh, by bicycle tires or stepped on more easily no they're in the trenches
0: uh moving across from one side to the other it almost makes me wonder if we've unintentionally created little bridges or tunnels For the ants, the same way that on Christmas Island, they have to create these uh, crab bridges and tunnels for crabs to let the migration get across the roads. Yeah, it does seem like that, like accidental
1: um, uh, pro-ant design. (laughs) Uh, Now, now speaking of E.O. Wilson, I want to point out to everybody, we've talked about E.O. Wilson on the show before, and E.O. Wilson has, of course, authored a number of books, uh, many of which are are ideal for a general audience. Uh, But if you want to watch a documentary about him, there Mm -hmm. is a wonderful PBS documentary uh, that came out several years ago titled E.O. Wilson of Ants and Men. You can probably get it wherever you stream PBS content. I know that at least here in the United States, you can get it on Prime.
0: Uh, it's really good. Yeah. it's uh, So I started watching it. I haven't finished yet. I watched the first half and it's just a delight. There's a great moment where, it, so E.O. Wilson, you know, one of the world authorities on ants, a revolutionary biologist for the world of eusocial insects and he says at one point, he says, the question people want to know the answer to most often about ants is, what do I do about the ones in my kitchen? <laughs> and then he says, uh, and here's what I tell them. You get a little piece of a cookie and you put it down near the ants and then you watch what they do. <laughs> I love that answer because on one hand,
1: it feels like maybe he's trying to teach us something like, oh, he's trying to teach me a lesson about why the ants are there to begin with. You know, I need to watch, I need to make sure my kitchen is clean. I need to make sure there's no, there's no food product or I need to think about why they've invaded my kitchen. But on the other hand, it seems just as likely that he's saying, you're not going to do anything about these ants. You're going to enjoy them. You're, yeah.
0: going to, you're going to feed them and watch how they work. There, There's a beautiful stoicism and, and joy in the way that he observes ants, even as they are, you know, doing things that most people would regard as an offense or an irritation. You know, we talked several times now about like, the scene where he's just letting all the fire ants sting his hand and he's mm-hmm. watching it with with such fascination and talking about what's going on as they're all attacking his skin at the same time. And uh, and then, yeah, and this is basically the same attitude, but with the kitchen instead of your hand. It's like, no, don't get upset. Just take pleasure in watching nature work. <laughs> oh, and by the way, Wilson has a new book on ants coming out this
1: fall, I noticed. Um called Tales from the Ant World. Hmm. All right, on that note, we're going to take one quick break, but we'll be right back uh, and we'll return to the world of the ants and the wars that they rage. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
4: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a beginner man. Available wherever you will get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details.
3: Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers...
1: One of the other sources that I was using in in reading about ants uh, for these episodes is the excellent book Animal Weapons by Douglas J. Imlin. And in it, the author has, has a whole bit where he's describing—basically, the whole book has to do with with bioweapons and the mm-hmm. uh, evolution of bioweapons in organisms and then comparing them to human warfare. Uh, but it, there's a whole bit where he's talking about the, quote, giant jaws and thick, distended heads of the army ants that allow them in mass to topple so many opponents. And he shares a, a fun bit of experience that really underlies just how, you know, powerful the design is on these little guys uh little gals rather um (laughs) basically he was out doing field some field experiments in belize and he accidentally sliced his thumb with a machete and without anything else to stitch up the wound uh, this is what they did first of all they did have some rum on them so they sterilized the wound with rum but then they sutured the wound with ants they simply placed the uh ants live ants along the line of the cut Uh, While someone held the cut together and allowed their little jaws to snap into place and then they tore the body away from the head and the heads of which they only required five or six kept their jaws latched tight and this held the wound together and allowed them to eventually get proper medical attention for the cut.
0: I would say uh, if I just heard this story in isolation, I would be inclined to doubt it. It seems so <laughs> hard to believe. But I i mean, obviously, I, I don't think Imlin's lying about this, but uh, that's just that's amazing.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, this is. It's also a great illustration of like a of a scientist, uh, you know, thinking about <laughs> about uh, how to solve a problem. I would never have thought, "Ooh, I'm cut. I really need to let's get some ants attached to this wound." But, but it's, it's also just a wonderful, um, uh, you know, d- description of just how powerful these little jaws are. Now. Uh, Army and uh, marauder ants wage uh, their war for food uh, and resources. They they will battle other forces for control of food resources, and they'll also invade other ant societies in order,
0: order to claim their larva and their pupa as food. Yeah, and it, these are some of the most striking types of ants that we see. I mean, you know, we're familiar with ant warfare that we've discussed before, say between uh, different types of, of fire ants, even here in the in the southern United States. But seeing ants that forage on the scale and with the tenacity of army ants or marauder ants is is a different kind of thing. Yeah. This might be a good place to pause and appreciate the the marvel of this one species of army ant that I've been reading into a lot, uh, and this is the species known as Eciton. Bercellii. There there are a lot of actually different species of ant that are commonly referred to as army ants, but Essaton Bercellii is, I think, the one species that people are most often talking about with that general title. They're a very charismatic, well-observed, and distributed species. They live in the humid equatorial regions of Central and South America, especially in the Amazon rainforest, but with their range extending up through Mexico and down south of Brazil into Argentina. Uh, But they're primarily primarily in the, the equatorial rainforests, And the, these ants will form colonies of several hundred thousand adults at a time with this rapacious foraging behavior, uh, satisfying the energy needs of the colony with raids that cover hundreds of meters. Uh, according to one estimate, I believe this was cited by Carl and Marian Rettenmeyer, who I'll, I'll mention again in a moment. They're ant experts. But the figure is that on average, each colony of Essatonbercella Kills and eats about 30,000 small animals every day. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> 30 every single day uh, and so th- they have this carnivorous diet this enormous carnivorous diet that is uh, especially important because they're trying to supply the developing larvae of their colony with a high fat diet that the larvae need in order to grow uh, so th- the babies need animal fat and the adults go out raiding so there's another really interesting thing about this species to me which is that they do not make permanent nests. Essaton Burchellii do not make permanent nests. We often think of ant colonies as defined by their nests, right? The ant hills, the ants are environmental engineers, but due to the energy needs of this species, they can't be tied down to one place for too long. Imagine them trying to form a permanent nest while their larvae are growing and they, they have these huge requirements for animal fat, you know, other in- insects to bring in and all that. Within a day or to, they probably would have cleared out all of the food sources within, I don't know, maybe a few hundred square meters of wherever they are. So instead, Essaton Bercellii builds a mobile fortress known as a bivouac. This is a moving fortress that protects the queen and the developing larvae. But the fortress is made not out of structures or or materials from the environment. It is made out of ants. (laughs) Do you see? Do you understand? It is a war rig for ants made out of the interlocked bodies of living ants, like a cage of millions of legs, antennae, and mandibles. Wow. I want to quote from uh, Peter Tyson writing for Nova in an article about these things. Quote, this elliptical mass, talking about the bivouac, this elliptical mass may be three feet across and hold up to 700,000 ants when they need to move to a new site where they bivouac on the surface rather than build a nest. E. Bercellii workers go first, ferrying food and larvae. Only after nightfall does the queen follow, escorted by a mass of soldier ants that completely surround her and will defend her with their lives." So the bivouac, again, is this moving fortress. The queen is inside, and the cage cannot be breached. Uh, this this was just so captivating to me. And uh, so if you're looking for these things in the forest, the bivouac can sometimes be found inside a hollow log or just on the forest floor, but also sometimes... It can be found hanging suspended from tree limbs. So imagine that like a dangling fortress for ants made out of ants. And it falls in line with the more general tendency of some ant species, including this one, toward body-based engineering projects. These army ants are also known to, say, assist the mobility of their forces by filling in potholes along the foraging route with plugs made out of live ants. So you just smooth over, smooth over the surface with ants. Or also for building bridges out of themselves to allow the rest of the army to cross gaps. And uh, uh, apparently these bivouacs also uh, emit an otherworldly stench, this amazing smell that allows you to locate them by smell alone within the rainforest. I, I would love to know what this smells like.
1: You know, all of this is a wonderful example, too, of the, the superorganism aspects of ants. How we, with other creatures, we, we, we talk about the individual you know uh, in in terms of understanding the species but but with ants you you look at behaviors like this and you see there's such cohesion there is there's this such you uh, eusocial um perfection that you can't look at an individual ant to understand them. You have to look at what uh,
0: the the colony itself is doing. But there's another thing I was thinking about with this model of ant life, uh, the fact that these ants create no permanent nests. It sort of reminds me of the idea of the strategic advantage of offense. Uh, you know, the, the old saying that the best defense is a good offense. This is actually considered true in some cases in military theory because the reasoning goes that when you're on the attack you have freedom basically you like as you're on the attack you are creating options for yourself versus when you're defending You have constraints, you have limited options. This is often true, just for example, in chess. Uh, You know, the chess players talk about the initiative that you gain when you're on the attack. You're constantly limiting the options for your opponent's next move if they have to defend their pieces against an attack that you just set up. Hmm. And this is obviously true across multiple contexts. It's known as maintaining the initiative. Now, obviously, there are there are many uh, there are many advantages you can get from having a defensive structure like a nest that's buried down in the ground. You know, the queen is very well protected, but that also limits your options, right? And and this is sort of the all offense strategy of the ant world. Well, it seems to be working well for
1: them. I mean, it's not like they busted this uh, strategy out uh, on on a test basis. Right.
0: <laughs> this is. This has been uh, honed uh, over, uh, over millions of years. So there's another thing that I was thinking about because I, I, I was thinking about warfare and Game of Thrones. And one thing I like that's acknowledged in those books is sort of like the real resource needs of moving armies. You know, it's not like yeah. an, a, a lot of fantasy where it's just sort of like uh, almost ethereal warriors just uh, ranging limitlessly to do their heroic deeds. You know, I mean, it, like you get the idea in those books that like ar- armies need supplies and all that. And and also it's acknowledged that there are huge numbers of people that accompany armies that are not themselves warriors these are known as camp followers and this is absolutely something that that happens in in real warfare large armies don't operate in a vacuum they have material needs that are not necessarily related to battle And they also create needs and opportunities for resource capture as they move and fight. And this this is why armies on campaign are historically accompanied both by camp followers that, you know, might like sell things to soldiers or might be family members of soldiers or sell services to soldiers, um, that kind of thing. But there are also often bandits that follow around moving armies uh, because, you know, when an army comes in and attacks somewhere, disturbs the existing order. That creates a lot of opportunities to exploit. Yeah, I mean it's
1: an absolute disruption, so it, it makes sense that opportunists would be there to take advantage of it. And, and I agree. I think this is something that that um, that, that is well explored in the, the the Song of Ice and Fire books. The idea of of war that just you know ravages the the countryside in so many ways, like it just just totally destroys all the resources in the area um i th- I think it I think they probably i think they probably brought this out well in the series too to a certain extent, especially early they, on yeah, yeah, I mean towards the end of that uh, the, those human wars like Westeros is just decimated and just tired and exhausted.
0: Yeah, that's true, and I mean it, it. It reflects reality that that, that mm-hmm. a war is not just a clash between armies, but it's the sort of the army versus the entire environment and everyone living within it. Um, yeah, and I think this is in some ways very true uh, for ants as well. I, I was reading a really good article. Uh, it was a short article, but a good one in Nat Geo by the always great Ed Yong, um, that was focused on work by Carl and Marion Rettenmeyer. I mentioned them a minute ago. So these are ant experts who created a nearly exhaustive catalog of all of the animals that follow the army ant species, Essaton bercellii. So these are the camp followers and the bandits that accompany this army. Uh, Ed writes, quote, There's no doubting their success as predators, but army ants also bring life wherever they march. They have an entourage of over 550 species that hang around their legions, of which 300 or so depend on the ants for their survival so in their disruption of of the environment around them they are also creating enough opportunities for the exploitation of resources that a full like 300 or so species couldn't live without these ants and another 200 something or so uh, depend on them in large ways wow that's impressive i you know i hadn't really thought about
1: it we talk about the you know ecological importance of the ants um and, uh, and this is just another example of that.
0: Yeah, uh, so th- this includes like 200 or so species of bird. Uh, one example is the oscillated ant bird. There are a number oh, of wow. ant birds. Ants, as they as they move along, the army ants will flush insects out of hiding. They'll flush out insects, arachnids, small invertebrates. And and so the ant birds will watch this happen and swoop in and take advantage of the fleeing animals. Uh, they actually almost never prey on the ants themselves. And so the ant birds will fly around the forest, checking in on seething biv- bivouacs, right? They, they perform a bivouac check. They're like, okay, is this bivouac about to march? And if it looks like one is about to get the war rig ready and send its workers out on raids, the birds will converge here and start looking for opportunities. Uh, apparently, the, the ant birds will fight amongst each other for the best spots. Of course, the best spot would basically be positioned just beyond the advancing front to catch all of the panicked prey animals as soon as they're driven out of hiding, Interesting. You know, I wonder if anyone's ever tackled this from a sci-fi perspective.
1: You know, we're, we're always encountering situations in sci-fi where humanity is locked in a, you know, an epic struggle, struggle against some alien adversary or, they're, or they've been partially wiped out by an alien adversary. I wonder if anyone's ever explored the idea of of, uh, you know, the alien force comes, it decimates the planet, you end up with like a post-apocalyptic scenario, but then the primary antagonist is not the destroyer, because the destroyer's moved on, right.
0: it's the opportunist who come in their wake. Right, the ant birds, the scavengers that come in after Earth has been, <laughs> yeah, 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 that, that would be an interesting uh, thing. I've never read anything like that, but I bet somebody's tried that idea.
1: Yeah, well, if they have, someone tell me what it
0: is, and if it doesn't exist, somebody write it so I can read it. <laughs> Uh, you know, another interesting thing about these ant birds, uh, Ed Young points out, is that on top of them existing as as sort of opportunists in what the ants do, there are secondary opportunists. Huh. And these are uh, a lot of species of butterflies that follow the ant birds to feed off of their droppings after they have preyed on the insects and other animals that are fleshed out by the ants. Hmm. Uh, But beyond that, there are a lot of other species, and it's not just species looking for food resources. Apparently, parasitic wasps and flies that reproduce by implanting larvae in the bodies of other invertebrates, they also follow army ant swarms, watching for the ants to drive crickets, grasshoppers, cockroaches, and other critters out of hiding. And then the parasites take immediate advantage. Uh, Ed Yong cites uh, caladoxia flies, but also, quote, stylogaster flies, which shoot harpoon like eggs at fleeing cockroaches and (laughs) and flesh flies that lay their eggs in the open wounds of animals that have been injured but not dismembered by the ants
1: oh wow so in some cases not being uh killed by the ant horde um is is worse than actually uh being decimated by them.
0: Well, it, I guess it depends on what you think is worse. I mean, is it worse to be injured by ants and then get maggots implanted in you or just to be killed just to be disassembled outright? Yeah. Even more amazingly, some parasites actually live within the ant bivouacs themselves, having various adaptations. We've talked about ant mimics before. There are apparently some species like this, like beetles, that survive by mimicking ants and just sort of like hanging out <laughs> among the ants, uh, trying to be undetected. Uh, but this was my favorite part. Ed Yong writes that some parasites, quote, use the ants as mobile restaurants, jumping onto workers that are carrying food and... And eating their booty right under or over their very jaws. So they (laughs) they hang out on the ant head, eating the food that the ant is carrying. Oh, wow. Um, Again, I think for a lot of species, this would require very special adaptations or, you know, you would immediately become prey yourself. Right. Right. But it's just amazing to imagine the tiny, like, full ecosystems, basically, that are made possible by the opportunities created by the chaos of a raiding army.
1: Yeah, in a way, you kind of have to come back to that um, that analogy of the superorganism, right? That the the ant colony is... Of what we might think of as the individual, like the ant colony is the body. And so it is going to have its own parasites. It's going to have its own uh, symbiotic relationships. And uh, and
0: that's what, kind of what we're seeing here. Absolutely. I, I think this is just the most astonishing species. I feel like maybe we're not even done with Esseton. With, with we, we can move on in this episode, but, uh, but we may have to come back to them in the future. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick
1: break. But when we come back, we will consider...
4: inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a there. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit AT&T.com hypergig for details.
3: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
0: All right, we're back. So we've already talked some about ant species that are referred to as the marauder ants. Uh, you, you read a passage uh, from one of those articles by Martin W. Moffat about marauder ants.
1: Yeah, Moffat points out that marauder ants excel in deploying troops in ways that increase efficiency and reduce the cost to a colony. And one thing that really makes them interesting is uh, is there variety in sizes among the workers? Yeah. They vary in size more than workers in any other ant colony. So this is where it gets interesting in, in a sort of war game point of view uh, manner, uh, because essentially we're getting into uh, different unit types here. Mm-hmm. So y- y- if you're fielding droids, for instance, on a on a, on a in a battle, you're okay. not just we're doing, we're doing a, Clone Wars here. Yeah, we're doing Clone Wars here. Okay, you're not you're not just busting out a, a ton of standard B1 battle droids, right? You're also busting out B2 super heavy battle droids or heavy weapon uh, droidica droidica. Um, uh, rolly-poly guys. If you're playing something like uh, Warhammer 40,000, it's not just space marines, you're also busting out specialized assault marines or heavy terminators, that sort of thing. And so Moffat points out that the Marauder's deploy smaller miners uh yeah that's what we call them or foot soldiers to the front line and they're these are just weak and hopeless uh, individuals against adversaries but there are tons of them so they work as a kind of barricade they bog down the enemy long enough for larger ants to move in the medias and the majors so again same species same uh, you know essentially um variety of this ant but it's like it's a different cast
0: yeah radically Um, different body forms
1: yeah Uh, some of these individuals the the majors compared to to the the minors they are 500 times as heavy as the, the smaller version. So these are real bruisers. I mean, these are these are monsters. Uh, my initial impulse would be to compare these like strictly to, to larger, um, you know, bruiser heavy uh, class fighters in fantasy armies. Like I'm thinking about some of the big specialized trolls in the armies of Mordor. But uh, but then I was thinking about I was like looking at the the size differential here and okay, let's assume that an orc or say a stormtrooper is roughly the average weight of a human. Okay, if we were to multiply that by 500, you're talking 34 tons. So
0: in the (laughs) real world, that's essentially the difference between a human and a humpback whale. Okay, so (laughs) that's crazy. Even, Even the troll would not really capture the size difference appropriately.
1: Yeah, like I ended up going down a rabbit hole trying to figure out how heavy different uh, fantasy and sci-fi army uh, vehicles and units were. And as best I can tell, based on some fan estimates, you might draw a comparison here between a single Imperial Stormtrooper and one of those two-legged ATST Walkers. Okay. That would be the difference between uh, a Marauder Minor Ant and a Marauder Major Ant. This is what Moffat writes, quote, the miners sacrifices on the front lines assure a low mortality for the medias and the majors, which require far more resources for the colony to raise and maintain. Putting the easily replaced fighters at greatest risk is a time honored battle technique. So in other words, stormtroopers are notoriously bad shots and they are apparently easily replaced. But your ATSTs, those are far more
0: precious. Yeah. Well, they cost more to make.
1: Yeah. Moffat also points out that the marauders tactics here line up with the example one sees in armies throughout history, the use of conscripted farmers and laborers alongside elite professional soldiers, with the common soldiers absorbing the worst of it while the elite units are protected and move in at strategic intervals. He also points out that marauders use what is known in military strategy as defeat in detail tactics, defeating an enemy unit by unit rather than engaging an enemy's full strength. Now, marauder ants also battle their own kind, pitting colony against colony. And in these contests, the majors and the medias also hang back and let the the miners do most of the fighting, tearing each other apart in in contests that tend to be even more brutal than the interspecies conflicts that also take place.
0: Uh, I'm going to get to some of the logic behind the differences in strategy here in just a minute, by the way. Yeah, because Moffat
1: refers to the work of University of Bristol's Nigel Franks, who found that the tactics of these ants in particular is consistent with lanchester's square law an equation developed in world war one by engineer frederick lanchester who also devised lanchester's linear law which we'll also touch base on here
0: yeah, I, I keep wanting to say Lannister, so don't let me say that. Yeah. <laughs> I know, if we keep I do. coming back to the fantasy uh, warfare yeah. <laughs> analogy. Uh, so Lanchester's laws are a set of mathematical models trying to explain outcomes in battle based on various kinds of initial force disparities. Generally generally uh, the, the main disparities are going to be individual unit effectiveness, so like how much damage each unit can do, and then also the numbers of combatants on either side Lanchester's square law in particular shows that in some types of combat, this is not all conflicts, but in some types of combat, for example, shooting wars involving masses of soldiers armed with rifles that can aim in any direction. In these types of combat, there are ways of organizing confrontations majorly to your advantage just just based on the numbers of forces and how they're grouped. Specifically, the, the, the main takeaway is don't split your forces is <laughs> Um, So to illustrate this, you can imagine, say, you got battle droids in in Star Wars, and say maybe one side has 100 battle droids, and the other side has exactly 100 battle droids as well. If you imagine each of the battle droids can shoot its blaster one time every second, and each shot has a 25% chance of destroying its target, you can work out that after one second of battle, both forces will be reduced equally by about 25%, maybe, after another second, etc goes on as the two sides decrease by attrition at roughly the same rate until both armies are mostly or fully vanquished at around the same time, unless for some reason one side gets an advantage early on. But that kind of process does not scale in a linear way. So if you have, say, 100 droids versus an opponent, say General Grievous is your opposing army and he's just got 50 droids. You, you probably can assume that the larger force will win, but you might not understand how much of an advantage the larger force has. So if, if you have the, you know the same kind of thing working, after the first second, your 100 droids will probably have destroyed roughly half of your opponent's 50 droids, but they really will not have destroyed many of yours at all, maybe only like 12 or so. And as each second of battle goes on, You reduce their fighting effectiveness more and more until what you're left with in the end is uh, very little casualties to the larger army and total decimation of the smaller one. And so this shows, for example, that if you have a force of 100 battle droids, it would be much easier for that those 100 battle droids to win two consecutive battles against 50 battle droids than to win one single battle against a force of 100. And this is exactly why divide and conquer is such an important principle of warfare. If you break your enemy up into smaller groupings with these certain types of combat, your advantage over them does not increase linearly it multiplies by the square Uh, in fact if you choose your battles wisely you can even use this to allow a smaller force to beat a bigger one so if you got 100 battle droids general grievous has 200 you could still potentially beat him overall by keeping your forces together and peeling off small segments of like 10 or 20 at a time to face sequentially with negligible losses to your own forces each time So this is, again, where we come back to defeat in detail. Exactly right. So in mathematical terms, what Lanchester predicted was that in these certain types of scenarios, uh, the strength of a group on the battlefield is the product of two things, the effectiveness of each fighting unit not times the number of units, but times the square of the number of units. And that's why it's known as the square law. And it tells you that for certain types of combat, sheer numbers can easily overwhelm differences in the effectiveness of individual fighting units. And it's interesting how this tends to go against what seems to be people's desire to understand like dramatic violent conflict in narratives, like in, you know, epic poetry and action movies and all that, where it seems like what people, or at least what authors think people want to see uh, is the idea that a single highly effective combatant, you know, your John Wick or whoever, can overcome many less effective enemies ganging up on them? And for many types of combat, this is not how real fighting actually works. Numbers are significantly more important than skills. Uh, like better to have five hundred off-brand discount battle droids than fifty elite IG units.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it it, uh, it it certainly does run run counter to our our, our epic story storytelling, yeah, where it's like one ragtag group of talented individuals can 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 turn the tide of battle against, uh, uh, against the faceless horde, yeah.
0: Yeah, and we should note again that the square law is not supposed to apply to all types of combat. For example, in situations where combatants have to face one another in one-on-one duels, one at a time, there the advantages of superior numbers are reduced to something closer to a pure linear function, and the individual effect of of each unit becomes a lot more relevant and so the way this works out in the real world is that like in situations where your forces do not have numerical superiority, military leaders who are conscious of these issues will try to engineer battle conditions to avoid square law scenarios and enforce linear law scenarios instead. One example would be like using natural terrain or fortifications to create choke points where the the majority of the enemy forces are held back from the action. They can't all fight you at once. The number of them that can fight you at the same time is limited by topography. And thus the battle becomes, it, it starts to resemble something more like a series of sequential duels instead of a simultaneous war of all against all. And, of course, examples of this in history are, you know, the way think about the way castles are constructed, narrow passageways, uh, you know, natural ravines, uh, bridges, gates, a spiral staircase in a castle tower. These tend to reduce the salience of the square law advantage and help you out, especially if you've got a smaller number of more effective fighters. So uh, to bring this back to ants, the, the question here is, which of these models is better at predicting the outcomes of ant wars? Is it the linear model where there's this direct linear relationship between the size of forces and the outcome? Or is it the square model where the larger numbers of concentrated forces just easily overwhelm other concerns like the like individual fighting unit effectiveness? Uh, there was a paper that was published in the 1990s in the journal Animal Behavior. Uh, this was in 1996 by Mary E.A. Whitehouse and Klaus Jaffa called Ant Wars, Combat Strategies, Territory, and Nest Defense in the Leaf-Cutting Ant Atta Levigata. And according to their research, they found, quote, The leaf-cutting ant, Atta Levigata, responded to a simulated vertebrate threat by recruiting many soldiers, and the soldiers would be a special special fighters, large workers but responded to conspecific and interspecific ant threats by recruiting mainly small ants. So the vertebrate attack here was simulated uh, pretty much by poking a stick in. You know, They'd poke a stick into the entrance of the colony nest and then shake it for 20 seconds. And this was meant to mimic the mechanical disturbance that would be caused by, an ant's, by the ant's main predator, the armadillo. In these attacks, what the ants would tend to do is they would bring more of their elite fighters to to defend the nest. So in this situation it appears evolution may be favoring the linear reasoning in this case. Meanwhile, when the ants are attacked by other ants, they tended to respond instead with overwhelming numbers of less dedicated fighters. So a threat from a rival ant colony seems to have been solved by natural selection to select for behaviors motivated by the square law.
1: Uh, Along these lines, Moffat also points out that, quote, a fighter's value to its colony bears on the risks the ant takes. The more expendable she is, the more likely she is to end up in harm's way. As such, uh, marauder ants, he writes, they guard their foraging trails with old and or maimed workers. And in fire ants, it's been observed that the old stay and fight while the very young run away. And in fire ants, uh, more in their
0: prime, will actually uh, uh, fake their own deaths. Wow. Well, fake their own deaths. I mean, this is, again, something that that makes more sense if you think about the ant colony as a single superorganism. It's like it's it's putting the, the the already damaged or less effective parts of itself out in front to absorb the brunt of the of the violence.
1: Yeah. Alright, so at this point, you're, you're, you're probably thinking, oh my goodness, they're out of time and you, you would be right. Just as the Ant War is heating up, <laughs> uh, we're going to have to close out this episode. But fear not, we're going to be back with a third Ant War episode that will more or less round everything out. Though, uh, a word of warning, if, I am, uh, if I'm looking at the schedule correctly, there will be another episode that will publish before the third Ant War episode publishes. So just bear with us, uh, the third ant war installment is on its way in the meantime if you would like to check out other episodes of stuff to blow your mind you can find us anywhere you get your
0: podcasts and wherever that happens to be just make sure you rate review and subscribe huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your
2: Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible.